A quick note that this episode includes adult language and portrays characters who hold racist and anti-Semitic views. Please take care while listening. 1872, the King of Prussia pub, East London. David Harris squeezes through the crowd and slumps down on a bar stool next to his cousin, Barney Bernardo. Here you go, bubbly like the rich folks have. Bernardo is 20 years old with a thin face and a snub nose. He removes his scruffy top hat and looks curiously at the drink. Champagne? Well, cousin, you must have done well for yourself in Africa. Did more than that. I got rich on roulette. <laughs> Started with a pound. A single pound ended the night with 1,400 quid. Bernardo's eyes widen. He's grown up in the narrow eastern slums, living off his wits and sometimes his fists. Well done. What are you going to do next? I'm going back to Africa. There's plenty more money to be made in those diamond fields. And they don't give you such a hard time for being Jewish, either. That helps. So what's the cape like? Bernardo's not the only one asking that question. Three years ago, the Cape Colony at the southern tip of Africa was a forlorn outpost of the British Empire. But then, people found diamonds. The first new source of diamonds in centuries... So now, fortune hunters are racing to the Cape's remote scrubland. What's it like? Well, it's strange. Flat as a frying pan, dry as a bone. And when it should be summer, it's winter. And when it should be winter, it's summer. Bernardo looks confused. They're giant birds, too. Tall as a man, faster than a horse, and with claws that can cut you in half. They can't fly, though. (laughs) One day... These birds came to drink at the river where men sift the mud for diamonds. The men start thinking, what if, what if those birds swallowed a diamond when drinking? Bernardo leans forward to catch every word of this bizarre tale. So, they get their rifles and shoot them all. Boom, 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 slaughtered the lot. Then they slice them open and dig through their entrails with their hands until they're elbow deep in blood and dirt and shit. Did they find any diamonds? No, but they could have. Men find diamonds all over out there. I tell you, Barney, the riches are there for the taking. Ah, my glass is empty. Another round? Bernardo nods. By the time his cousin returns, he's decided to join the diamond rush too. But there's no guarantee he'll be popping champagne corks anytime soon. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S., It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com. 
to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. There's something magical about diamonds. Their hardness is legendary, and when a well-cut diamond catches the light just right, their sparkle is dazzling. Diamonds are a $70 billion industry with a story as spectacular as the gems themselves. The appeal of these glittering prizes has co-opted movie stars and spy masters, unleashed bloodshed and war, and provoked diplomatic clashes and scientific breakthroughs. And yet for most of the industry's existence, it's been ruled by one company alone, De Beers. In our new seven-part series, we tell this story of how De Beers won, defended, and ultimately surrendered its hold over the diamond mining industry. This is episode one, The Diamond Rush. Eighteen seventy-three, Cape Colony, present-day South Africa. Barney Bernardo walks next to an ox-drawn wagon as it bumps along over the rough, sun-baked earth. He's wearing a blue checkered suit smeared with red dirt. It's been three months since he boarded a steamship to Cape Town and watched England vanish over the horizon. In Cape Town, he paid for transport to Kimberley, the diamond mining town six hundred miles inland. His transport is cheap, and that's because it amounts to being allowed to walk alongside the wagon and sleep under it at night. But he's happy. The vast, sunny plains of thorn bushes feel liberating after the damp, dark, cramped alleys of London. But now, after weeks of walking, Bernardo notices a haze of dust and smoke on the horizon. He looks up at the wagon driver. Is that... Yes, that's Kimberly. If you want a better view, climb on up. Bernardo clambers onto the wagon. He sees a sea of tents and shacks made of sheet metal and packing crates. As they get closer, he gags at the stench of 50,000 people in a town with no fresh water and open latrines. He marvels as they pass between the two open-pit diamond mines. In the craters... He sees thousands of black laborers attacking the red earth with picks and shovels. An enormous mesh of steel wires, rope, and pulleys hangs over the pits like a web. Buckets of dirt rise from the pit and are pulled along the wires to the rim, where white overseers wash the soil through sieves, hoping to find rough diamonds. The wagon driver looks at Bernardo. These are the poor man's pits. They yield so little even natives own some of the claims. My advice? Go to Kimberley or De Beers Mines on the north side of town. They yield more diamonds. De Beers? That's a funny name. The land the mine's on used to be owned by a boar farmer by that name, and it's stuck. He's long gone now, though. So who owns it now? The land? Well, no one and everyone. 
The way it works is you buy a small piece of the mine, a claim they call it. Each claim's about, oh, 30 square feet. The mining authorities don't let anyone own more than two, so people buy a claim, dig, and hope for the best. If it doesn't work out, they sell the claim on to the next man. With that, the driver drops Bernardo in Market Square. Bernardo stands, shooing flies away from his face as people swirl all around him. He's got a few pounds, 40 boxes of cheap cigars, and no idea what to do next. So he hustles. He fights in boxing matches, sells pencils and cons some suckers into thinking his low-grade smokes are Cuban cigars. Then he befriends a Liverpudlian named Louis Cohen. Together, they start a business buying rough diamonds from miners and reselling them to European cutters and polishers. But they're starting small, in an 8 by 6 foot 10 shack with a bare earth floor. It's 1874, and in the tin shack, a sunburnt white miner watches Cohen examine a rough diamond through his magnifying loop. The miner glances impatiently at the door. Well, you want it or not? Please, have patience. Cohen's not actually assessing the stone. He's just putting on a show. He and Bernardo know little about gemstones. Still, even Cohen knows this stone's good. Too good. He figures no one would bring it to their scrappy shack unless it was stolen. Cohen lowers his loop. Hmm. Three pounds. It's worth at least five. Then go show it all around town. (sighs) Fine. Give me the money. As the miner leaves, Bernardo bursts in. Louis, I got news about old man Walker. Cohen perks up. Walker's a rival diamond trader who always gets the best stones. Bernardo and Cohen envy him. They've even tried following him to learn his secrets. Bernardo lights a cigarette. He's going to London and selling his horse for 27 pound 10 shilling. Outrageous! His old horse is fit for nothing but glue. Yes, but I noticed something. After his diamond buying rounds, he always has a drink at Hall's Canteen. And when he gets there, he's practically asleep in the saddle, but his horse knows exactly where to go. Do you understand? No. The horse knows his roots. We buy it, and it'll lead us to the claims he buys his diamonds from. (laughs) Barney, that's a ridiculous plan. Well, I'm buying the horse anyway, just to prove you wrong. It may be ridiculous, but Bernardo's hunch is right. The horse takes him straight to the claims that produce the best diamonds, and soon they're hauling in big profits. Bernardo quickly hatches another plan, increasing his profits even further by buying claims in the mines so he has his own diamond supply. But by then, the dream of the diamond rush is beginning to unravel. It's May, 1874, and at the De Beers mine, miners harangue the official who oversees the claims. One grizzled miner looms over the bureaucrat. My claim's been waterlogged since January. We need a water pump, but instead of fixing it, you hired that man to do it. He don't even have a pump. Before the official can reply, 
The man who's angered the miner steps forward. He's a tall 20-year-old with a triangular mustache. He extends a hand to the miner. Sir, my name is Cecil Rhodes and my word is my bond. If I say I will pump this water, it will happen. The miner glares at Rhodes. He's seen him around making money from selling ice cream and other supplies to those folks digging for diamonds. Now, he's passing himself off as a water pumper to make a fast buck. And just how are you going to clear out the water without a pump, Mr. Rhodes? I know of a pump eight days' ride from here. I intend to ride there immediately to retrieve it. You better not be lying. I am an Englishman and an Oxford scholar. I do not lie, sir. Oh, he's an Oxford scholar. That an Englishman. <laughs> After the miners leave, Rhodes business associate Charles Rudd turns to him. Do you really know where there's a pump? Yes, on a farm near Victoria West. What if the farmer won't sell? Rhodes smirks. He will. Every man has his price, Mr. Rudd. Rhodes glances at the waterlogged mine. Since coming to Kimberley in 1871, he's watched its four mines fall into disrepair. Each pit is a patchwork quilt of individual claims. In the De Beers mine alone, there are more than a thousand claim holders. This cannot continue, Mr. Rudd. What can't? This? All these miners think if only they could mine more stones, they'll be rich. But all they're doing is pushing prices lower. We need to consolidate. Only when one man controls the mines can supply be managed and profits maximized. Rudd shrugs. Agreed, but that's impossible. The mining authorities won't let anyone own more than ten claims. But that cap on claims won't last. By 1875, diamond prices are so low, miners can no longer sell them at a profit. Facing ruin, angry white miners stage armed uprisings, and they pick an easy scapegoat for their failures. Black laborers, who they claim are stealing their diamonds. After quashing the revolt, the colonial authorities appease the white miners by introducing new laws, laws that target black laborers in the name of stopping the trade in stolen diamonds. The authorities strip black people of their right to own claims and limit their ability to change employers. White claim holders are empowered to strip search their black laborers at will. The reality that whites are also stealing diamonds from the mines goes ignored. The new laws also end the cap on claim ownership, and by 1880, a new diamond rush is on. A race to control the mines. Go-getting claim holders form companies to buy up the claims of small-time miners. Ornato buys into the Kimberley mine, jousting with the likes of the French company, a venture backed by Parisian bankers. Rhodes also joins the battle for dominance. He uses his profits from water pumping to form the De Beers Mining Company, and starts buying claims in De Beers Mine. But to succeed, he needs money to buy more claims. And that means he needs an ally who inspires confidence among bankers. It's early 1880 and Rhodes strides through the streets of Kimberley after a night of drinking. 
He heads down Main Street, past the offices of the upmarket diamond buyers. Every office is dark, except for one, the office of Alfred Bate. Bates, a short German diamond expert who advises the French company. Just the kind of well-connected man Rhodes needs. He opens Bates' door. Inside, Bates hunched over his desk, absorbed in piles of ledgers. Rhodes stands in the doorway, hands on hips. Hello, Alfred. Don't you ever rest? Not often. Rhodes steps forward. Interesting. Well, what's your game? Bates smiles. To control the whole diamond industry. Rhodes grins. Hmm, that's funny. I've made up my mind to do the same. We'd better join hands. Bate looks up and scrutinizes Rhodes like he's under a jeweler's loop, calculating the value of an alliance with him. He senses that Rhodes has something others lack, a ruthless determination and a lust for power so strong that he'll never stop or waver no matter the cost. And that's a rare quality. Yes, yes, Mr. Rhodes, I think we should join hands. Please. Sit. Shall we start by discussing how to gain control of De Beers' mind? It's July, 1887, and Barney Bernardo stands at the edge of Kimberly Mine in a colorful, checkered suit. He watches as his workers plant bundles of dynamite around the mine. His mine. Well, close enough. His company owns 80% of the biggest diamond mine on Earth. His rivals might see him as a low-born Jewish street urchin. But who's laughing now? Bernardo's outwitted them. He spent, charmed, and manipulated his way to the top. One by one, he has taken down his competitors for control of Kimberly Mine and absorbed their claims into his mining empire. The only holdout is the French company. Just a matter of time, Bernardo thinks. And once he buys French out, he can go after Cecil Rhodes and his De Beers company. But that's tomorrow's job. Today is about celebration. An aide approaches. Mr. Bernardo, the dynamite's ready to blow on your command. Well, don't keep the people waiting. Start the show. On signal, the crews around the mine light the dynamite fuses and run for cover. Bernardo hops from foot to foot in anticipation and then... The explosion shake the town of Kimberley and send red dirt shooting into the air. As crowds rush to the site, Bernardo jumps around with glee. He's the new king of diamonds. Watching from the back of the crowd with his arms crossed is De Beers chairman Cecil Rhodes and his financial fixer Alfred Bate. A few weeks ago, they gained total control over De Beers' mine, but Bernardo now looks unstoppable. His company is already ten times the size of De Beers. As Bernardo pulls a woman from the crowd for a dance, Rhodes turns to Bate. He'll be after the French company next, Alfred. Yes, yes, hmm. And then De Beers. Indeed. We must take the French company before he can. Bate frowns and fiddles with his tie. Yes, yes, but but we'll need to borrow heavily, very heavily indeed. There's only one lender with pockets deep enough. Rothschild Bank in London. I can arrange an audience with Lord Rothschild. Then do it. 
I will leave for London immediately. The next day, Rhodes sets off for Cape Town while Bate cables London to arrange a face-to-face that could change the balance of power in the diamond fields. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It's July 1887, and in London, Cecil Rhodes is sitting in the Italian Renaissance-style headquarters of Rothschild Bank. Across the table, Lord Nathaniel Rothschild strokes his thick beard and reads his advisor's assessment of the Cape Colony's diamond mines. Well, Mr. Rhodes, you want a million pounds. What for? To buy out the French company. Unless we consolidate the mines and control the supply... Diamond production will continue to outpace demand. Diamonds will become worthless. I intend to restrict supply, force up prices, and reduce costs. Mr. Rhodes, obviously the mines need to be controlled by one man, but why should it be you? Well, because I know this is about more than diamonds. It's about expanding the wealth and dominions of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. I'm not interested in toy soldiers, sir. My business is money, not jingoism and swashbuckling. So I ask again, why you? Why shouldn't I help Bernardo buy you out? My lord, I am a purebred Englishman, a vicar's son, a member of the Cape Parliament, and an Oxford graduate. Mr. Bernardo is of the East End slums. He lacks refinement and good manners. And let's not forget how he built his business trading stolen diamonds. Is that a fact, Mr. Rhodes? Yes, yes, he's too devious to be caught, but all Kimberly knows it's true. My lord, when the mines consolidate, they'll need a trustworthy man in charge. Lord Rothschild glances out the window, and then back at Rhodes. Very well. Go to Paris and persuade the directors of the French company to sell to you. In the meantime, I'll raise the million pounds you desire. It's October, 1887. And back in Cape Colony, 
in a private meeting room in the exclusive Kimberly Club, Cecil Rhodes is on edge. He offered to buy the French company for 1.4 million pounds, but before its stockholders could accept, Barney Bernardo made a counteroffer of 1.7 million. So, Rhodes has invited Bernardo to the Kimberly Club for a chat. Bernardo enters the room wearing a bright yellow waistcoat and pince-nez glasses. Hello, Cecil. You giving up yet or what? Rhodes' face flushes red with rage. Listen, man, this will do no good. You can offer 3,000 more than I will offer 3,000 more than that. We can go on and on and on, but believe me, in the end, I will have the French company. (laughs) Bernardo bursts out laughing. Very amusing, very amusing. Yes, the way I see it, you're borrowing the money and I'm not. Your lenders will ditch you before you can outbid me. Rose spins around and slams his hand against the wall. With his back to Bernardo, he struggles for control. Bernardo's right. He can't win on price. But maybe, just maybe, there's another way. He turns to Bernardo. (sighs) Fine. Well, how about this? I buy the French for $1.4 million, then I sell it to you for 300000 and a 20% stake in your business. I maintain credibility, you get Kimberly mine, and we both save time and money. Bernardo thinks it over. It means surrendering his majority stake in the business, but his friends still have enough shares to ensure he maintains control. He smiles. Agreed. Let's shake hands on it. But the moment the deal's done, Rhodes goes on the attack. Using loans from the Rothschild Bank, he buys every share he can in Bernardo's company. The stock price soars. 14 pounds, then 20, 30, 40, almost 50. Soon, stockholders once loyal to Bernardo are selling up, eroding his grip on the business. Bernardo hits back. He floods the market with diamonds, crashing the price. Soon, Rhodes lenders are running scared. They're paying top dollar to buy shares in a business that mines increasingly worthless gemstones. It's a high-stakes game of chicken, and if neither man backs down soon, the diamond industry will be destroyed. It's March, 1888, and Rhodes and Bernardo were in a corrugated iron shack in Kimberley. They've been there for hours trying to strike a peace deal. Now, it's 3 a.m. As Bernardo guzzles another bottle of stout, Rhodes presses on. So, you agree to sell De Beers for 5.3 million. In return, you will be the largest shareholder and I will be the chairman. Now, we just need to agree on the company's deeds. Bernardo wipes the stout from his lips with his sleeve. Yeah, I don't understand these deeds. They're all about acquiring land, raising armies, and building railroads. What has that got to do with diamonds? Rhodes leans forward. What I, what we, are building here is about more than diamonds. Africa is lying there, ready for the taking. This company is the means to take it. This is about destiny. 
empire, glory. With this company's wealth, I can raise the Union Jack over all of Southern Africa. Bernardo stares at Rhodes. He sees now that for Rhodes, this was never about money. It's about power. And that means Rhodes won't accept any limits on what he can use the company for. Bernardo falls back into his chair. He can't see the point in fighting anymore. Besides, he's still going to emerge the richest man in Kimberley from this deal. Some people have a fancy for this thing and some for that. You have a fancy for making an empire. Well, I suppose I must give it to you. And with that, the De Beers Diamond Monopoly is born. Within months, all four of Kimberly's diamond mines are under its control, giving Rhodes dominion over 90% of the world's diamonds. He slashes costs, firing thousands of white and black laborers. He reduces output, and the price of diamonds jumps. And soon, the profits will help fund the conquest of the lands that will be renamed Rhodesia. It's July 1892, and another shift at Kimberley Mine is over. Black workers emerge from the mine shaft into an enclosed tunnel that leads to a building in a vast walled compound. In the building, the miners strip and wait to be searched. Through the window, they see white workers leaving the compound with barely more than a pat-down. As a white overseer searches the black miners one by one, an aristocratic white woman in an expensive dress watches. She's Flora Shaw, colonial correspondent for the Times newspaper in London. The overseer uses his fingers to probe a naked miner's mouth for concealed diamonds. Next, he checks the man's nostrils, ears, hair, and feet. Bend over. As the miner complies, Shaw turns to the De Beers executive, showing her around. How unpleasant a job for your searcher. What happens next? They go back into the compound. Do they ever leave? They can only leave when their contract ends. If they don't renew, they must leave town. We don't let their families visit, either. I see. These compounds, they're like... monasteries. Monasteries of labor. Mm-hmm. Poetically put, but the way I see it, this keeps them contained and cheap. Shaw leaves South Africa a true believer. Like Rhodes himself, she thinks his diamond empire will endure forever. For that to happen, De Beers must protect its monopoly on the stones. But some are willing to do whatever it takes to break De Beers' grip on the diamond supply. On the next episode... A new diamond field threatens De Beers' monopoly. An ad agency seeks to rewrite the rules of love. And De Beers comes under attack from the inside. From Wondery, this is Episode 1 of Diamond Wars. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Don't forget to join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free. 
In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey and tell us which business stories you like to hear. A quick note about recreations in this episode. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they're based on historical research. If you'd like to learn more about the history of diamonds, we recommend Diamonds, Gold, and War by Martin Meredith and The Heartless Stone by Tom Zollner. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondering. Hi, I'm Brooke. And I'm Arisha. And we're the hosts of Even the Rich. So I want you to imagine you're about to go on stage and perform in front of 30,000 cheering fans. You pop a cough drop, take some deep breaths, tell yourself, you can do this. And that's when your brother steps into your dressing room. He tells you the police are here. Either you clean up your act or you'll get arrested. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But you just laugh and say, good, because the you in this story is Madonna. You're going to give the police a moment they'll never forget. Ooh, so what happens next? If you want to find out, you'll have to listen to the newest season of Even the Rich, The Making of Madonna. Follow on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free.